Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Music podcast. In this episode, I speak with Michelle Cruz-Gonzalez, the drummer of the hardcore punk band Spitboy, and the author of The Spitboy Rules, Tales of a Chicana in a Female Punk Band. Our conversation explores the beginning of Spitboy, the Bay Area punk scene, what it was like being in a feminist hardcore band, Spitboy's conflict with the riot girl movement, and the racial identity of the punk scene. We also talk about how Michelle Cruz-Gonzalez found her way to becoming a writer and a professor. Hello. Hi there. Hey, so tell me a little bit about how you got it into punk music. Um, well, my mom, I, I have a single, my mom was single when I was growing up and she had a record collection. It wasn't like super huge or anything, but she had a lot of um, women's music in it, like Joni Mitchell, and Linda Ronstadt. And um, I listened to her records, of course, when I was young. And um, I favored the the female music. She also listened to bands I hated, like really horrible hippie music like Grateful Dead, um, who I still can't stand. And I also started playing the flute when I was in the third grade. And so I fancied myself a musician at a quite early age. And But even though I liked my mom, some of my mom's music, I knew it wasn't really my music. So... Between being in the elementary school band, marching band, I grew up in a really small town just listening to whatever I could find on the radio that seemed kind of newer and hip. Um, And then the Go-Go's happened, oh my God, (laughs) and the Clash. And um, in 1983, when I was 13, I went to the US Festival and I saw the Clash play. It was their last show with Mick Jones. And it totally, like so many other people, um, changed my life. And I went home and I still had feathered hair and like cut my hair off and me and my friend, um, after we saw the go, after we heard about the Go Go's, we already wanted to start a band. So after the clash, we were like, okay, now we're really going to start a band, and it's going to be a political band. It's going to be a punk band, and um, we got to start learning our instruments right now. So that was pretty much the trajectory. So from flute, I, I was going to be the guitar player, but I was a terrible guitar player. So I switched over to drums, so we could. Um, uh, have a, a drummer at least because drummers are hard to find and also because somehow in my head I knew I would be a better drummer and I did I took to it a lot faster we were able to write songs within a couple of months of me starting to play I'm curious what mm-hmm. is political for a 13 year old like how how are you <laughs> viewing your politics well the clash are a really political band you know I mean they were like I know a lot of people still think they were sellouts but they were singing about really political stuff they were singing about like Issues like Sandinistas and like U.S. intervention in Central America. And they also sang some more personally political songs, too. And, you know, this was under Reagan. My mom was single. We were on welfare. All of us in the band had single moms. Who was, and we were all on welfare. So we were really good friends from elementary school and remained friends all the way through high school. And I believe the reason we stayed friends it all gravitated toward punk rock was because we lived in this small town and people really saw us as outcasts as, um, you know, we were these, you know, fatherless 
girls who had kind of like wild single mothers who did not hide their pot smoking, psychedelic drug taking ways at all. So, you know, Reagan goes and calls our moms welfare queens. And we were just like, what? So that really, and I think all of those things together really, and my mom is a pretty tough lady. You know, she doesn't let people mess with her. You know, she will speak out and, you know, use the F word often and, and loudly. Um, so I don't know. I think I was politicized early on. My mom's not particularly political, but she's um, very fierce. And then just the environment of growing up in a small town and getting bullied by my teachers in addition to students because I was Mexican and poor and on welfare. I mean, all of those things, I don't know. I I don't know how all of those things couldn't make you political, frankly. (laughs) But I'm sure there are people who grew up like I did who didn't become political at like 13, but I did. Also, my, my best friend, Nicole Lopez, who was in the band Bitch Fight that we started when we were 15, her mom was actually really political. And she had gone for a semester to Cal. She was really smart. She dropped out for some reason, but she had lived in Berkeley and, you know, went to, you know, rallies and demonstrations and just really became politicized there. And she would, and I write about this in the book. I think it's actually a really funny part of the book. People tend to laugh when I read it out loud that she would like record news reports about U.S. intervention in Central America. And she loved the clash too. (laughs) And she would make us listen to them back. Like she would record them and then she would summarize them and then she would make us listen to them so we knew what was going on. So Nicole's mom, her name was um, Sean. She also really encouraged our um, activism. We joined the Sonora anti-war group at her suggestion and she would drive us to demonstrations in the Bay Area and we'd make signs. So I think also Nicole's mom was a real big influence. So one of the things I'm really interested in is the relationship between sort of like politics, and I don't want to say fun, but if it were merely just politics, I don't know if people would be interested. So how is the punk scene fun, um, and why did how did you get get sort of joy out of it? Mm-hmm. Well, since I liked playing music from an early age and got a lot of personal satisfaction out of playing music, but also a lot of like, you know, kind of attention and props from the adults around me. It also just gave me something to do. I was so bored in this town, right? This town is so small and so limiting. But so music was a fun activity for us because there was very little else going on. But we weren't content with listening to music. We were going to play music because we were already doing that. And so we wanted to start this band and we knew that would be fun. And we knew that if we started a band, maybe we could play like parties or whatever. You know, Um, we also had this fantasy that we would move to San Francisco together as the band. That would be our way out. We would move to San Francisco and we would play shows there and that that would be fun. And it would be our way to meet people. And once we got to the Bay Area, we wouldn't just be there kind of like trying to meet new people. We would be we would have this band, this this mechanism that we could, you know, take and, you know, kind of say, look, this is who we are. It kind of was like a built in identity in a sense. This is who we are. and This is what we're about. And we want to play shows and meet other people. I think for a lot of other people in punk, um, you know, there are a lot of different kind of punks. They're like the drunk punks. They like just want to get wasted and like F shit up, you know, like just mess up, do anything that's like 
destructive as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think some young people consider those things fun. But that really wasn't that really wasn't our thing. We just thought it was fun to play music. And we also knew that I mean, we didn't we didn't let being girls or women make us, you know, limit we didn't let that limit us. We were like, yeah, we were always been playing music since we were in elementary school. There's no reason why we can't be in a punk band or any other kind of band for that matter if we want to. Um and we didn't let that limit us at all. Um, but I don't know. We just for us it sounds nerdy, I know, but <laughs> for us, playing music was just a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, and it was, it was more fun, frankly, than being in marching band, right? Because, you know, in marching band, you had to wear this, like, really heavy, our uniforms were black and orange, this really, like, heavy, like, polyester uniform with this big fuzzy hat and marching in this mother lobe parade for, like, three hours in the sun and stepping around, you know, piles of horse dung, you know, like that was punk being in a punk band was way more fun than that. So (laughs) um, we just wanted to, we wanted something to do when music was the thing that we thought was cool. And um, we did know, we did have a sense that we could move to the Bay area. If we could afford it, move to the Bay area and people would pay attention to us because we were women playing punk music. And we knew that. And not only did we want to play music, but we wanted to move out and get the heck out of Tuolumne and move to the Bay Area and not be like small fish, basically. So what was it like, the punk scene in San Francisco when you got there? And how did they respond to women musicians? The punk scene was really kind of like split. There was like East Bay and there was West Bay. West Bay... The Mabuhe Gardens, there weren't any shows there anymore, but we had gone to some when we were in high school. We used to drive down to shows um, to the Bay Area. We'd drive down two, three hours down and two, three hours back in the same night just to go to see, like, the dead Kennedys and stuff. That's how dedicated we were. <laughs> um, but so in, when we moved down to the Bay Area, um, we never played the farm, but the farm was the place where the punk shows were in San Francisco the all ages punk show. So we, we, I was only 17 when I moved to San Francisco, Nicole was still 17 and Susie was um, 18. So we weren't going to be able to play 21 and over clubs. So we would just hang out at the farm um, or we'd go to shows that were in people's houses or people's basements. And then in the East Bay, there was Gilman street and the Gilman street, the West Bay people, the San Francisco punks, there were a lot more at that time. There were a lot more skinheads who came out to shows at the farm. I would, I'll, we were always worried about getting beaten up. The skinhead girls did not like Mexican American punk girls at all. We were always um, threatened at those shows. But the West Bay punks really thought that the Gilman Street scene was like really immature and really nerdy. And we, we liked both scenes. You know, we thought both scenes were cool. We came from Tuolumne. Any of it was cool compared to where we came from. So we didn't really have those same judgments. And um, also there were a lot of amazing bands coming out of the Gilman Street scene. That was when Crimshrine was playing and Operation Ivy were playing and so many other amazing bands. And um, we started playing at Gilman within a, a, a few months of being in the Bay Area, we started playing shows. We played with MDC in Berkeley in front of the police station, and we played a bunch of shows at Gilman. We played house parties, and um, we were only together for about a year and a half in the Bay Area. Um, 
our name was Bish Fight, and we fought a lot, and that's why we named ourselves that. And we couldn't manage to get along, so we did break up. <laughs> um, we were young, and it was sad. It was. Um, I, I realized when I was writing um, the Spit Boy role that how kind of uh, depressed I was after we broke up, even though I was like, super angry at them after we broke up, Nicole and Susie. And Elka, we met Elka, our guitar player in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. I was, like, super mad at them, mainly Nicole and Susie. But I was also just mainly really kind of depressed at losing those friendships. Because those were friendships that I had. I mean, Susie and I were friends since we were four and five years old. So I think I've gotten off topic. But you can reel me back in now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so how did Spit Boy start? And how much did kind of feminism play in the band's identity and even approach to being a band? Mm-hmm. Well, Spit Boy started in 1990. Bitch Fight broke up in like 1988 or maybe 89, early 89 probably. I was in Kamal and the Carnivores in 1989. I played guitar horribly, but they just let me be in the band because, I don't know, they thought it was cool or something. And um, after Kamal and the Carnivores broke up, even when we were together, I wanted to be in another band because I w- I was, I'm a drummer. I wasn't really a guitar player. And so I wanted to be in a band where I could really put my actual talents to use. And um, I started, you know, I was kind of like always looking for women who I felt wanted to be in a band that was all female. That was a requirement for me, all female, and that wanted to play punk and probably hardcore because at the time the hardcore bands I I gravitated more towards like the hardcore punk because it tended to be more political and um I I my fantasy was to be in a band that was all women that wrote about women's issues and like I for a long time I was like looking around like there's got to be a band like that I, I gotta find. I would always like go to the record stores and or read Maximum Rock and Roll and try to find you know a band that was women that was playing hardcore that was political that was writing about women's issues and I just never found that band and I you know it just hit me like I that, I'm gonna just have to start that band that's the band that I have to be in I guess because I have somebody has to fill that void might as well be me I've been in other bands before. Talk to people during this era about. Yeah, there needs to be an all-women hardcore band. And what kind of response did you get? I don't really think I spoke about it in that way. But I would always, when I would meet women, I would always ask them if they played an instrument. (laughs) (laughs) And if they played an instrument, I would try to become their friend. (laughs) And then try to find out if they were, like, into, like, political hardcore, political punk rock. And then I would, like, wait for the right time you know, when we seemed friendly enough or had gotten enough information to find out they'd want to be in a band with me. And some people expressed interest. Um, some people who weren't really in, who didn't really play instruments. And I already played the drums. I didn't really have time. It wasn't like when I was 15 anymore. I didn't really have time to wait around for someone to play their instrument so much. I was willing to do that to a certain extent, but I really wanted a band that could get up and start writing songs right away. So, um, there was a, a, you know, the women in Spitboy were women who were doing things in the scene, like volunteering at Blacklist Mail Order and working at Maximum Rock and Roll. And that's kind of how we all, we met. I met Paula first, the bass player. And then I heard Adrian singing on some tape that my ex-boyfriend had. And I told Paula I wanted to be in a band. She said, oh, that's cool. I'm learning how to play bass right now. I said, excellent. Keep practicing. Let's find some other people. And then she learned that Karen, who was working at both Maximum and Blacklist, 
learned or was playing guitar. She had taken guitar lessons when she was young, but some of the guys in some punk bands like Cringer over there were teaching her bar chords. And um, we asked her to come to a practice and we asked Adrian and at the end of the night, we just knew that we were a band. It just fit. I had written the song seriously on acoustic guitar and I showed them the song just so we kind of would have something to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had lyrics for it and everything. And it was really, I mean, that, that was also probably another sign, another test. Like if they want to be in a band with me, this is the kind of stuff they're going to have to sing about. And it was a song about being sexually harassed at a party. And um, by the end of the night, we were like, yeah, we're a band. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we just started talking about where we we're going to practice and when we were going to practice next. And that was that. And how much, um, did you have to talk explicitly about sort of the, the feminist perspective that you were going to adopt? Or was it just like you brought that song in and you're like, yep, this is kind of where, where we're going. I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, um, we all did, you know, like to talk things out a lot. I think given who we were, we all just sort of knew I think between the song, my song, and the fact that Adrian wrote a feminist fanzine at the time called Too Far, and given that Paula and Karen already, like, consider themselves feminists and were, you know, active in the scene, we all just kind of knew where we were headed. And there wasn't any, like, prescription. It wasn't like, we have to write songs only about women's issues, because not all of our songs were about women's issues, actually. I mean, they were, most of them were, I would say, you know, 85% 85% of them were, but some of them were more personally political or some of our, you know, I, I wrote songs about capital punishment or like immigration issues um, later on. But we would often, we, I think, I think our main approach was we are going to write songs about our experiences as women. That was kind of like the basic approach. And so of course we had to write a song about what it was like being women walking down the street at night alone or walking down the street and getting harassed. Um, we, I wrote that song about sexual harassment. We wrote about rape. You know, we wrote about things that we had personally experienced or that women who we know had experienced. Unfortunately, the songs that we wrote were all about things that we had all, at least one of us had experienced in, in our already at that point, short lifetimes. So how did audience respond to this? Because, you know, my memory of kind of the music I was hearing in the Chicago area, mm-hmm. um, wasn't really dealing with those topics. So how, how did audiences want? <laughs> well, <laughs> I remember our first show, like, we played at a warehouse. I wrote about this, too, and I, it was something I, I actually added this part later when I was revising the book or getting ready for the final edits or for the final, you know, like, edit by the editor. Our first show, I remember that, a lot of people came to see us, but we really, I, I should speak for myself here. I really had the sense that they didn't come to see us because they were excited about what could possibly be the newest punk band in the Bay area. But they came to see us because it was sort of a spectacle like, okay, these women who have been a part of the scene for a while, who have names in the scene somewhat have banded together and they're going to play hardcore. And so people were more curious, I think, than anything else. And I, 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 I also sort of felt like people wanted to know if we could pull it off. The funny thing, and, and I don't, I, I think other people would, other people in the band would probably agree with me, though I haven't 
talk to to everybody about this particular thing. You know, at the time that Spitboy was playing in the Bay Area, we, I mean, this wasn't the case on tour, but this was the case in the Bay Area. People would come to see us play, but we often played with other bands that other people wanted to see. Paxton Quigley, Neurosis, Econochrist, touring bands coming from out of town, you know. But our closest friends would not come and see us every time we played. And the funny thing was, like, I was the kind of person that if Econochrist was playing, I would go to every show. When Operation Ivy, I don't think there was hardly any, a single Operation Ivy show that I missed. I would go and see my favorite bands play every time they played. But Spitboy didn't have that kind of following among our own friends. And I think that it was because the the scene here was predominantly male and um, the people who, who we were maybe even unfortunately seeking approval from were, were male. And I just think that our message, our songs were, it was like, it was cool that we were doing it, but they felt like it was a little bit of a threat to them, to what they were doing, to their masculinity. Or it was just like, I, I think another way to look at it would be, nobody really wants to be lectured, right? <laughs> and that's kind of how some people felt. Some people felt that we were lecturing them and we were preaching and we were, and that's fine. You know, you something you asked me about earlier was you were asking me about, you know, our approach. And one of our approaches was message first. We wanted to play hardcore, sure. But what we really wanted to do was write about our experiences. What we really wanted to do was say something that people weren't saying in punk rock, Writing, writing songs from a, a women, from women's, from a woman's perspective. Um, and I do think that that was hard for some people to take. So, uh, you know, when we're on tour, people are excited to see us. They'd come out. Bay Area bands are always a draw, especially back then in the 90s. Bay Area punk rock was really on the map. And so we were a draw when we went on tour. Sometimes we were, we were a draw for, we, I think more women would come out to see us, which was really great. Because people were excited, you know, other women, women in other scenes around the United States were excited to see women play music and they would just come out just because they heard we were all women. But in the Bay Area, and, and I, I'm not complaining. I mean, like now people go, oh, yeah, Spitboy, they were, you know, so great ahead of their time and all this stuff. But at the time, I don't really remember people feeling that particularly referent, you know, like reverential about us. They weren't particularly like singing our name from the rooftops. No one was really mean necessarily. I mean, there were some people who, you know, those drunk punk dudes who would come to shows and, you know, tell us to like play naked or whatever, you know, say insulting things and sexist things to us just to try to get a rise out of us. But if they did that, they would just get another lecture. So, (laughs) so I guess I feel obligated now to ask the sort of the obligatory question, which you write about in terms of the conflict, um, you had with the riot girls. So Mm -hmm. um, maybe can you maybe offer a little bit of background about how that came into being that sort of conflict and, and how, and what your thoughts were at that time? Well, the main conflict was that we Spitboy started in the Bay area before either before riot girl happened or simultaneously. And so we didn't know, anything about Ryan Girl. We didn't know what it was. We hadn't heard of it. We didn't read about it in the scene report in advance of starting our band or anything. So we, from the Bay Area's perspective, consider ourselves pre-Riot Girl. 
as soon as we, um, I think within like, I don't know, nine or so months of being together, we went on a, a first, a, a 10 day tour. And then not too long after that, we went on a four month tour of the United States and then we went to Europe. And so we started touring and playing out of town fairly quickly um, after we formed and, you know, put out a record, um, put out a seven inch on Lookout Records. People wanted to interview us because, you know, um, some people want to interview us because they were interested in women playing music or what we had to say. And some people just wanted to interview us purely because um, it would be interesting to feature women playing music or women playing punk rock or whatever. When we started getting interviewed kind of on a regular basis, people would always ask us if we were a riot girl band. And we were like, oh, my God, why do they keep asking us this question? It just really started to get on our nerves. Are you a riot girl band? We would say, no, we're not a riot girl band. Or or we would say, oh, well, you know, we, we didn't really say no, like, right away. We'd be like, oh, riot girl, you know, it's so great they're doing that, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we're from the beer. We don't really, you know, we're not really part of that scene. We'd kind of, like, try to skirt around it. And it became clear to us that pretty quickly that if you're a woman playing music, people assumed you were a riot girl or people assumed you were a riot girl band. And that just annoyed us because we were felt like we were getting pigeonholed. And it wasn't that we were against so much against anything that riot girl was doing because we weren't necessarily, though we did have the conflict with the boys in the back issue. Um, we had discussed it as a band and we, we, um, on our, one of our big U S tours, we decided oh, we are not going to tell boys to go to the back. We are not a riot girl band. And maybe next time someone asks us that, we should just say in an interview that we're not. Maybe we need to just start saying that we're not a riot girl band in order for us, for people to stop asking that question. So we finally started saying that we weren't a riot girl band and then played in D.C. And some young man in the audience came up to us and asked us if the boys had to stand in the back. And we were like, what? We didn't really know that riot girl was doing this at the time. We're like, what? And they're like, you know, when like Bikini Kill plays, this was in DC and Bikini Kill were living there at the time. They're like, when Bikini Kill plays, all the boys, they make all the boys stand in the back. And we were just like, really? That just seemed really <laughs> harsh and discriminatory to us. And we were like, well, I mean, we can all see the point that they were trying to make. And I actually think it's quite a clever point, but it just felt like another form of discrimination. And we just didn't like it. And we were like, no, you don't have to stand in the back. So when we got on stage, I, I into my vocal mic said, um, we don't expect the boys to stand in the back. You can stand anywhere you want because we're not a riot girl band. And I said it like so blunt and the room just went dead silent. And basically from then on, we were just like total, we were just so hated by riot girls because it was almost as if, how dare you? speak ill of riot girl that was kind of like the attitude um and you know i'm i'm of the mind you know i was maybe professorial even before i was a professor that anything you know everything should be open for critique nothing is sacred it shouldn't be and when it is then that's a problem and so but i did feel bad i mean i did i i was really not diplomatic at all you know it it you know, I was in my mid twenties and I really was shitting where I was eating. And that was not a cool thing to do. Probably. I, I don't think I would do it differently, but that much differently. I would have maybe just chosen my words a little more carefully and tried to be a little more diplomatic, but 
really that was kind of like the point when when um, Riot Girl really um, people in some zines and stuff or were you know kind of like the punk rock grapevine people would tell us that you know oh yeah they hate you because you said that and blah 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 I'm like, okay well I guess we had to make a decision you know we had to make a decision and just say it and that's the decision that we made and it's a decision that we're going to have have to live with and we were fine we were fine with that decision and actually. Now, in hindsight, you know, given the critiques of Riot Girl and it, it's sort of like white girl feminist, you know, kind of like a focus, um, it, it's, it's, it feels, I mean, we would have never known. How could we have known that those critiques would have been, I mean, well, maybe we could have, but we wouldn't have guessed that these critiques now would be made, you know, some 20 years later about Riot Girl. But that they were made and that I was a person of color in the band, only person of color in the band. It, it makes me feel like kind of good that we actually took a stand um, one way or the other. We actually did take a stand and um, just said it like it was. And um, ultimately, though, as I write in the book, um, when we titled our seven inch Mi Cuerpo's Meal, we were accused in, a, in like a fan zine, like a Riot girl zine um, of a cultural appropriation. Um, apparently, I think the, the young woman who wrote it didn't realize that I was a person of color, which, of course, was is a whole other problem, right? Another blind spot. So, at any rate, I think that's mainly the, the girl story. Well, there was that you've written about or I've heard you talk about is there was an objection to the, even the use of the word girl. And I thought that was really interesting Yeah. as well. So, can you maybe talk a yeah, little bit about totally. that? That really was our first objection to the Riot Girl, the whole Riot Girl movement. You know, looking at Riot Girl now, I just think I, you know, it's you know, I look at what they what they accomplished with a lot of admiration. You know, it wasn't just music; it was zines, it was ideas, it was self help groups. I mean, all that stuff is so amazing to have done and to have you know to have conceived all that. But in the Bay Area in the nineteen nineties, women, straight or not did not want to be called girls. We had finally, we had said, we are women. Don't call us girls. You know, when you call us girls, it becomes a hierarchical thing. You see us as less. Similar to calling a black man boy. You know, it really, it really kind of shows the speaker's feelings about, about this hierarchical, you know, this hierarchical beliefs in a sense. And, um, we were in this feminist punk band, and if you called us girls, we would say, we're not girls. You need to call us women because we are women. We are grown-ups. And um, so when Riot Girl first kind of happened or came, came, um, uh, what's the word? When, when we first realized that Riot Girl was like a real big thing, um, we began being asked about it. We were like, yeah, no, we're not that, mainly because... We don't want to be called girls. That was like our first, our, our major first objection. I mean, in the Bay Area, women were like women spe- spelling the name women with a with a Y or with an I even. So I don't know the the Bay Area Bay Area feminism that didn't sit well with Bay Area feminism. That girl label. Well, one of the things that you we were talking about just a few seconds ago was talking about sort of the whiteness of punk and and i will admit the thing that really drew me to your book was actually the subtitle tales of a chicana in a female punk band and i really wanted to 
engage you in this conversation about how punk is constructed racially and how social class and race mix in sort of the idea of punk. So how do you see punk being sort of constructed racially? And, and when did you start having a critique of, of, of this racial construction? Um, I think the critique began to happen, you know, once Spitboy began, we, we wrote several songs about feminist issues for a little bit there. You know, I went through a point of like, well, I, I've written everything I, I can about, you know, for now about women's issues. And I started thinking more about my own personal identity and kind of, I was just starting to have these feelings of dissatisfaction or alienation, I think is a better word in my own scene where I had worked so hard to be visible and to not be a small fish. You know, I came from this small town and I, I wanted to do something. I wanted to be a part of something and um, came to the Bay Area and I was in these bands and I was a part of something and it was really exciting. But I, I realized as I got older, as I, as I was growing a little older and maybe maturing a little more, I started to realize that I was a part of something, but people didn't totally see me. And it was, you know, at the time, uh, right, this was all probably happening before the Mi Cuerpo Es Mio record came out. And I, I started, I, I don't speak Spanish fluently. I, I um, learned a lot of Spanish in college. You know, a third generation Chicana, third generation Mexican American, and my mother doesn't speak Spanish because um, you know she grew up in the intense time of Americanization. You know, during that walkout time, um, the Chicano movement walkouts were protesting. One of the things they protested was young people getting spanked in school and high school for speaking Spanish, and that's why my mom doesn't speak Spanish because. Her parents stopped speaking Spanish to her when she was um, four, right before she went to kindergarten, because they didn't want the teachers to be beating on her at school. And they didn't want her to get in trouble for speaking Spanish, so they stopped. So in the punk scene, I started realizing that I wasn't really, that people saw me, I was the drummer of Spitboy. And I even had like this nickname from high school. That's a long story, but I won't go into that. But I had this nickname from high school, Todd, which is a boy's name, which is cool. It's way better than Michelle. I never liked the name Michelle. But um, Todd is kind of like a classic white boy name. <laughs> so not only was I not visible, I had, you know, kind of put some things in place to make myself even less visible as a person of color. And I realized at some point that I was sort of participating in, in my own invisibilization and it freaked me out. And so I started taking Spanish classes and, you know, learning to speak Spanish was something I wanted since I was a very young child. I used to read the dictionary when I was in elementary school and think if I read the dictionary, I could learn Spanish. Of course, it doesn't work that way, right? So I started, you know, taking on this childhood dream of learning to speak my, my family's language and, um, my grandparents speak Spanish. And um, I, you know, at the time that Miquet, right before Miquet was Mio came out, I was having all these feelings and of alienation and just kind of like, wow, I really um, participated in this. And then, you know, the Bay Area. Now, L.A., if I was growing up in L.A., it would be different because like L.A. is the second largest Mexican city in the entire world. If you're going to go to a punk show, there's going to be a bunch of Latino punk rockers because L.A. is full of Latinos. But the Bay Area punk scene 
and and I'm sure this is true in places in the Midwest, like Chicago at the time when you were there, the Bay Area punk scene was predominantly white and very male-dominated and very male, white male-dominated. And so, like I said earlier, I had really done a lot to be a part of something and then come to realize that I was a part of something, but only part of me was a part of something. And um, I started to, you know, explore my identity more and to speak more about being Mexican-American. I mean, the funny thing is I always had cooked Mexican-American food. Um, even though I didn't speak Spanish, there were other ways that I expressed my Mexicanismo, my Chicanismo, but um, not like at a punk show. I wasn't like cooking tortillas at a punk show, right? So, you know, it's sort of a funny thing. So I, 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 I started to basically come out as a person of color and to speak more about it and to be more vocal about it in lyrics and the, the title of the record and then just in my own personal conversations. And I, I, I admittedly went through it. I will admit that I went through a very angry phase. I went through a very angry, angry at white people phase. <laughs> and um, that anger was one of the things that created some of the tensions in the band. So I will say that some of the tensions in the band were already happening as a result of class differences as well. I think that within the band, the class differences were probably bigger, um, were, were, were bigger intrusions than, than race. Um, but the two are so intertwined that it's very hard to pull them apart. Right. You don't really ever know which one affected the other more. I mean, there was the story where I bring this boy to see my family or to meet my grandmother, and um, they just are so shocked and, and blown away. Like, they did not expect, I don't know, they didn't expect what they got when I took them to my grandmother's house. And it was a very uncomfortable situation for all of us. And um, it made me really sad um, for myself and just like, wow, you know, it's this, you know, they don't, they don't really know me either. You know, it was another level of realization for me that, that was sad and probably also added to my like, you know, anger and um, kind of bad attitude <laughs> that I had at times. And you know, I, I took that out on the band probably sometimes and it, and, you know, it wasn't fair, but it was part of my process, you know, and it, it's a common part of the process for, for a lot of people of color. And, um, you know, it's just part of the process. It's, a, it's not, you know, I don't think it's neither good nor bad. It's just, it just is what it is. You know, it's something that, that a lot of people I think have gone through. So what's your sense about has the punk community, which I know is kind of a difficult term even because there's so many subgenres, but yeah. um, do you think punk has gained more sort of self-awareness about these sort of race, racial and socioeconomic divides? Or do you think punk just is still kind of dealing and struggling with those? Um, I think that punk is more aware of these things. It seems to me, I think that we, uh, we, we know how to discuss race and class issues better now. We see them and we, we have language for it, which is exciting. I mean, I remember early on that gender issues and and lesbian and gay and even some transgender, you know, you know, issues were, were common to discuss um, in the punk scene. And I, I think that those 
early discussions about gender identity um, helped the scene um, find language for, for people that were part of this misfit scene that also didn't feel like they fit in. And so then we, we found a way to discuss those issues and kind of like um, be open about those issues. And I think that, you know, just learning, learning how to see others who might not be like you um, um, helped with, with race and class issues as well. I mean, I do still see that there's like a lot of people that are just like on blanket anti-racist, you know, you know, just blanket, like, you know, Nazi punks, fuck off all this kind of thing. And then, but then at the same time, in their own daily lives, I can see that, that that's a slogan, but that, that, that certain attitudes or like, um, there are other like subtle, I don't know. I think that racism in some ways, racism and classism, like people aren't overt about it anymore. Um, but I think there are subtle ways that people are racist and classist still, um, some people use the term microaggressions or whatever, but um, which I think is somewhat of a useful term, actually. Um, I know there's a lot of debate about it. <laughs> yeah. But um, I do think that, that it seems that we have more language or, or a way to discuss these things where we weren't quite doing that before. I mean, I, when I say we, like, you know, I also like to remind readers or listeners that we, at the time when, when these things were difficult for me, um, were very young. We were very young. So um, we, can, we can look back on the punk scene and critique like punks in the 90s who were in their 20s. But I think it's important to remember that those punks in, who were in their 20s in the 90s were punks in their 20s. And they were still trying to figure things out. You know, there were young people who who didn't have it all figured out um, and were learning a lot along the way. And that's the really cool thing about punk rock is that it does allow you to, like, you can learn a lot really fast along the way. Um, and, you know, there, there are good ideas out there. And if you're, if you're ready for them, um, there's a lot that you can gain. So um, maybe tell me tell me a little bit about how you evolved from being in a punk band to now becoming a writer and a professor and how you, you kind of accomplished that shift. Well, after Spitboy broke up, the three of us minus Adrian, the singer started instant girl and that band we knew was only going to be together for one year because Dominique, the bass player had gotten into Yale to study architecture and, um, she deferred for a year and we, we played in this band. And then um, we knew that once the year was up, she was going to be gone and we were going to have to break up. Karen, the guitar player, had two bachelor's degrees already. And I was the only one in the band, an instant girl, who hadn't finished college. And I just felt like, man, and I kept trying. I was in community college off and on for 10 years. <laughs> I, and I always tell my students, man, none of you are going to take as long to get through community college as I did. Um, so... I figured once the band broke up, you know, I had been trying to, to go to school and get some kind of bachelor's degree. I finished my general education for a long time. And 
I was a preschool teacher for many years. So a lot of what I did was take was take early childhood development classes so that I can, you know, move up as a from a teacher's aide to a preschool teacher and then a preschool director, co-director and, you know, move up in that job and also increase my pay. So a lot of the classes that I took at night because I was working full time, I come from a family that's not well off at all. No one could help me pay my way. I paid all my own way pretty much. So after I finished all my ECD classes, I started taking some general ed, but it was still really slow going. And, um, you know, I, I was, I always really admired Karen, the guitar player for having two master's degrees before she even moved to the Bay area and started a punk band. I mean, who does that? I mean, not master's degree, two bachelor's degrees. One was in French and one was in journalism. And, um, I just thought that was so cool. And I admired it. I admired her a lot for that. And she was, you know, just really kind of worldly to me and smart. And um, Dominique had, you know, gone to this music conservatory and then gotten into Cal and then got into Yale. And she was, you know, just sort of this Renaissance woman who was a painter and an architect and a musician. And once Instant Girl broke up, I was like, yeah, I really need to finish school. I really need to just take this seriously and find a way to finance going to school full time. And, and that was a really scary thing for me. I mean, one of the reasons why I didn't do it sooner is because I really couldn't afford it. And then between, you know, then I also had the band, which was which felt like a huge pursuit. And it took up a lot of time and we'd leave for, you know, six weeks at a time or something to go on tour. So um, I applied to Mills College, which is a private women's college. And I was raised by women. I was in a band by women. I was like, Mills College, perfect school for me. Um, but it's very expensive. Um, and my counselor at, at the community college where I went was a sort of pompous Englishman. And he said, oh, you don't want to go to Mills. You can't afford Mills. I was like, and I can cuss, right? Yeah. But on this show. Okay. <laughs> I know I already did a couple times, but I should sooner. Um I was like, fuck that guy. I'm totally going to Mills now. Like, I'm really going to go. I'm going to show that guy. So I went to see another counselor, and I told her that I wanted to go to Mills. She said, well, it's really expensive, but, you know, they do have scholarships, and here's the information. If that's where you want to go, you know, you should just try it and apply to some other places, too. Well, I didn't apply to any other places because um, I really didn't know what I was doing. I could only handle applying to do, you know, kind of do one thing at a time. Like the first time I filled out the FAFSA form, even when I went to community college, the first time I cried because like that kind of thing just scared me. And when you grow up in a family where almost nobody graduated from high school and nobody went to college, those kinds of government forms, those are just like hell. They're so daunting. And, um, so I literally cried the first time I filled out the FAFSA. And then, um, so I had like this phobia of all these forms and applying it just seemed like such a foreign process to me and I just felt really scared but um that counselor at Mills who told me I couldn't afford it really put this fire under me and I guess I'm that kind of woman you know you tell me I can't do something then I will go and do it I will try even harder to do it so I applied and I thought well this is going to be my starter application if I don't get in I'll at least I know how to do it and I'll apply again in like you know a semester I got in the first time I couldn't believe it. I totally got in and they offered me this huge scholarship. So I went, I went to Mills and I, I was supposed to, I was hoping to start as a sophomore. I mean, as a, as a junior, I started as a sophomore because I took a bunch of classes that I really didn't need in community college all those years. So I started when I was, I went back to school full time when I was 28 years old and um, applied to Mills again for the graduate program in, and I, English and creative writing. I had I'd gotten the BA in English slash creative writing and uh, minored in ethnic studies. And 
no, no. I just, you know, went straight through to graduate school because I wasn't, I knew I wasn't getting any younger and I really needed to keep up with that momentum. And then straight away I started um, teaching at um, adjunct at Diablo Valley College, which is where the professor told me that I couldn't afford to go to Mills. (laughs) So I showed that guy. So like I said before, I was a preschool teacher. So I was always a teacher of some sort. And I know preschool teaching isn't the same as teaching English, but um, there are a lot of things about teaching that are similar. One is like setting limits and, you know, all those things, having a plan. And um, punk rock, being in a band like Spit Boy that has a message and that wants to kind of expose people to new ideas, that's really not different than being an English teacher, really. So um, it was a really good fit for me. And the first day in the classroom when I was teaching adjunct, I had this feeling like, I know I have a lot to learn, but this is totally what I was meant to do. And I love it. I really love community college. Community college is like totally punk rock. Anyone can do it. Anyone can join. Open access. You don't have to know how to play your instrument. You don't have to be good at math or English yet. Anyone can go. And um, because I went to community college, I have a, a strong affinity for it and, and its, its mission. And um, yeah, so there I am teaching community college English. That's very cool. Well, thank you for taking so much time to talk <laughs> to me today. And um, before we go, are there any other writing projects you're working on right now? I am writing a novel about, it's, a, it's like satire. It's like a dystopian novel about... Um, the California seceding from the rest of the United States and enforcing exogamy between whites and Mexicans. They kick out everybody, all other people of color, and the the white elites um, force intermarriage between whites and Mexicans in order to create a race of beautiful and hardworking people. That's my novel. I'm also trying to publish um, the memoir that I wrote actually before the Spitboy Rule, and so I'm trying to get that published. And... Um, Come on, the Carnivores, which was a band that I was um, in briefly, is going to play a reunion show at Gilman in January. And I don't know how to play any of the songs. Actually, none of us know how to play any of the songs anymore. So <laughs> we're all going to have to relearn how to play our songs. And that's I'm really excited about that. So I have some music stuff coming up, too. Well, very good. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Books and Music podcast. Today, I've been talking with Michelle Cruz-Gonzalez the author of The Spitboy Rule, Tales of the Chicana in a Female Punk Band. This is your host, Richard Chur. Thank you for listening. <laughs>